0: God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by sending deadly pestilence upon the livestock of Egypt. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, Behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe plague on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but not one of the livestock of the sons of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent men, and they learned that, behold, not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Several Egyptian gods, and at least one goddess, seem to have been in the crosshairs of this plague. The goddess Hator was associated with cows. The Egyptian god Hop, later called Apis in Greek, was associated with the bull. And finally, Hop was worshipped in the context of the god Ptah, the Egyptian god of building, crafting, and sculpting. Richard Wilkinson has described these deities in the following ways. One of Egypt's greatest goddesses, Hator, may possibly have originated in the pre-dynastic or early dynastic times, though most of the evidence for her dates to later periods. The name Hattor was written as a composite hieroglyph showing a falcon within the hieroglyphic sign representing a walled building or courtyard and literally means the house of Horus, relating to the goddess's mythological role as the mother of the ancient falcon god. From the written form of her name, as the house of Horus, Hator may also be seen as the sky in which the great falcon lived, or alternatively, as the womb, metaphorically referred to as house, from which he was born. In this form, Hator was both a solar sky goddess and a goddess of the primeval sky waters. Hator was closely connected with the sun god Re, whose discs she wears and whose wife, I or daughter she was said to be. In any event, Hator's bovine form is central to her developed persona, and it is in this form that she must be related to the primeval cow goddess, Mehet Weret, whom she seems to have assimilated by middle kingdom times. In her bovine form, Hator also protected the king, and acted as a royal nurse, symbolically suckling the monarch even as an adult. Hator was often described as the beautiful one, and was inextricably associated with love and female sexuality, as well as with motherhood. In addition to her purely Egyptian roles, Hathor was also made a goddess of foreign lands, as far apart as Byblos in, the, in Lebanon in the north, and Punt, probably northern Eritrea in the south. As the patroness of foreign regions, she oversaw trade and the acquisition of many mineral and other resources won from the deserts. Women aspired to be assimilated with Hattor in the afterlife in the same manner that men desired to become Osiris, but the goddess's relationship to the deceased applied to men and women alike. Although closely related to Hator's aspect as a goddess of fertility, sexuality, and love, her role as a provider of pleasure and joy was independent in itself. Now, Ptah. Ptah appears to be one of the oldest of Egypt's gods and is attested representationally from the first dynasty onward there is no doubt that the primary geographic association of Ptah was with the general region of Memphis. If Ptah was not originally a god of craftsmanship, this aspect of his identity was certainly an ancient one, as it can be seen at an early date and then remains constant throughout the god's history. During the Old Kingdom, the high priest of Ptah bore the title Wer Karep Hemu, great leader of the craftsmen, and while the god's name gives no firm clue to his origin, it is perhaps based on a root of later words meaning to sculpt, and thus related to his identity as a craftsman god. In this role, Ptah was both the sculptor or smith of mankind and creator of the arts and crafts. As a result of his identification with craftsmanship or concurrent with it, Ptah became a god of creation and was known as the sculptor of the earth, who like the ram god Khnum was believed to form everything on his potter's wheel. More fundamentally, Ptah came to be known as the Ancient One, who united in his person both the masculine primeval deity Nun and his feminine counterpart counterpart Nanet, so that he was seen as the primordial deity whose creative power was manifest in every aspect of the cosmos. The story of creation, as attributed to Ptah by the priests of Memphis, whereby the god was said to have created the world through his thought and creative word or command, was one of the most intellectual creation myths to arise in Egypt and in the whole of the ancient world. As with most deities, the epithets according, accorded Ptah were wide-ranging and complementary. Honorific titles such as Neferher, Merciful of Face, or Neb Ma'at, Lord of Truth, are often given to the god in inscriptions, but epithets extolling the god as a hearer of prayers seem to have had particular significance. And now Apis, or Hap. Apis was the most important of the bull deities of Egypt and can be traced back to the beginning of the dynastic period. The origins of the god called by the Egyptians Hop are not entirely clear, but because his cult center was at Memphis, he was assimilated into the worship of the great Memphite god Ptah at an early date, first as the herald or son of that god, and eventually as the living image or manifestation of the glorious soul of Ptah himself. Mythologically, it was said that the Apis bull was born of a virgin cow that had been impregnated by the god Ptah, and Apis' association with the Memphite god tended to stress the sacred bull's procreative power as a concrete expression of the creative power of Ptah. As chief of the Egyptian bull deities, Apis was also closely linked to monarchical ideology, where the physical power of the bull was stressed. The king's power was equated with that of the god as when the pharaoh strode alongside the Apis bull in the performance of the Sed the Set festival, which aimed at the strengthening and rejuvenation of his powers. In addition to this goddess and these gods, the donkey was associated at times with both the Egyptian god Set and with Re, and the horse was associated with gods and goddesses of war. The camel is a strange addition to the list given this time period in Egypt and may only be tangentially associated with Set. But despite this wide variety of deities, something united all of these deities and the livestock that were thought to symbolize them. In the West today, we often think of livestock primarily as a food source, and certainly dairy products and meat were part of the Egyptian diet. However, meat was a luxury in ancient Egypt to which most people had little access. The peasantry likely enjoyed meat only on special occasions, but one of the more common uses of animals in ancient Egypt was for manual labor. This is why, for instance, the bull god, Hop, or Apis, was associated with the builder god, Ptah, and why the goddess Hator was, in addition to livestock, also associated with a variety of desert minerals. Livestock, donkeys, horses, and camels were the foundation of the infrastructure of ancient Egypt. Whether fields were being plowed, goods were being transported, chariots were heading out for war, or caravans were going out or coming in, the infrastructure, trade, and commerce of Egypt was built on the backs of animal labor. When God struck down the livestock, donkeys, horses, and camels of Egypt, God was inviting the Egyptians to call upon the gods they believed operated through these animals to rescue them. And again, on this occasion, God spared the livestock of the Israelites from the pestilence he sent upon the Egyptian animals. Only the livestock, donkeys, horses, and camels of the Egyptians became ill. Pharaoh's response to this plague is somewhat unique. Initially, Pharaoh sent people to investigate the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, to see if their animals had been stricken. And even upon learning that Moses' word had been fulfilled and the animals of Israel were unaffected, he still did not let the people go. But strangely, Pharaoh did not ask Moses to pray that the plague be removed. In fact, the book of Exodus never records the cessation of this plague. It seems to have persisted until the last. The Egyptians credited a number of their gods and goddesses with providing humanity the skill and wisdom to domesticate and train animals, along with the wisdom to use them to build structures and civilizations. However, God revealed to the Israelites that he was the source of all of these gifts. In the original creation of land animals in Genesis chapter 1, God had created three categories of animals—creatures that crawl along the ground, wild animals, and livestock. For the Israelites, this intimated that God intended some animals from the beginning to assist humans in their work on the earth. And later, in the book of Exodus, God revealed that the wisdom and skill to build and to design was a gift of God to humanity as well. The following can be found in Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to create artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan and in the hearts of all who are skillful I have put skill so that they may make everything that I have commanded you. The egyptians saw knowledge as a gift from their gods whether knowledge of animal husbandry artisanship or architecture each had been gifted to them by a divine being for the gifts of animal husbandry and building they had worshipped Hattor, hop and ptah which god of the west is akin to these gods the egyptian gods of wisdom and knowledge today have been subsumed by the western god of science the christian scriptures tell us that at the beginning of human life on earth God had placed humanity in a garden that he had planted, and that he gave them permission to eat from every tree in that garden save one. Genesis recounts the the tale thusly. This is Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it you will certainly die. In the Hebrew language, the sense of this tree was that it contained both helpful, good, and harmful, evil knowledge. It was not a tree of wisdom or discernment. It was simply a tree of knowledge, and God forbade them from eating from it. But humanity did not obey this commandment of God. The story continues in Genesis chapter 3, now in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband with her, And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Ever since, humanity has been eating from the tree of knowledge in a quest to become like God. After Adam and Eve's first son Cain murdered their second son Abel, Cain was exiled to live distant from his family. Cain married, which indicates to us that there are many tales of these early periods of human life on earth that we have not been told and his family line was defined by increase in knowledge and skill. Cain himself was a farmer. Cain's son Enoch built the first city. His descendant Jabal was the first to domesticate animals, and Jabal's brother Jubal was the first musician, and another descendant of Cain, named Tubal-Cain, was the first metal worker. As we saw in Exodus chapter 31, God was not opposed to endowing humans with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, but to eat from the tree of knowledge is to take knowledge at one's own initiative, without reference to God as teacher and mentor. This incessant eating from the tree of knowledge is the essence of Western science. The word science comes from the Latin scientia, meaning to know. The Western god of science is a god of knowledge, and faith in it has proven powerful, practical, and seductive. In the Gospel according to Mark chapter 11, verses 20-25, to 25, we find the following teaching of Jesus. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. Oftentimes, when we consider this passage, we're tempted to understand faith to operate as a type of magic. Read in this way, then, Jesus was suggesting that if we pray, believing that a mountain will be thrown into the sea, then the mountain will magically move simply by the act of believing. But that's not what Jesus was trying to illustrate. What does it mean to have faith in God? What does it mean to have faith in anything? In contemporary American Christianity, we have often understood faith to be a matter of convictions or beliefs or even intellectual trust, and when we've thought about faith in the context of prayer, it often acts as some sort of a rubbing of the lamp to release the magical power of God. But faith is more concrete than that and more commonly experienced than we often suppose. In 2007, a man from India named Dashrat Manji died of cancer. He was nicknamed the Mountain Man. Armed with nothing more than a hammer and chisel, he spent the 22 years from 1960 to 1982 carving a path through a hillock, which is a small hill, in Bihar, India. When he finished, he had cut a 360-foot-long path, 30 feet wide and 25 feet deep. Manji's story is an illustration of the kind of faith of which Jesus was speaking. Unwavering belief in the end result of extended and sustained effort. The power of this kind of faith has been evidenced over and over again throughout human history, in ancient projects like the construction of the pyramids in Egypt, to technological innovations like the airplane, to the ever-evolving work today in the field of artificial intelligence. Jesus was not saying anything new, but he was saying it in an unexpected way. In this context, Jesus had cursed a fig tree for not bearing fruit, And then he had gone into the temple and drove all merchants out of the outer courts, accusing them of making his father's house a den of robbers. After leaving the city, they passed again the fig tree that he had cursed, though now, instead of green, leafy, and fruitless, the fig tree had withered. Jesus had cursed a fig tree. Then he had gone in and pruned the merchants from the temple, and lo and behold, the fig tree had been pruned. In this context, Jesus had prayed, acted in concert with his prayer, and consequently his prayer had real effect in the world. The fig tree was a physical sign of the temple and the result of Jesus' activity therein. It was not magic. It was faith of the sort that moves mountains. In the earliest days of Genesis, when humans attempted to build a city on earth that would rival God's dwelling place in the heavens, God said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have started to do. And now nothing which they plan to do will be impossible for them. How did God know? God is our creator. Faith is a gift and a power to the human race from our creator, and wherever it has been enacted and maintained, amazing and terrible things have been accomplished. All we in the West have built and accomplished has prepared us to understand the power of faith when it's directed in a singular direction. The fruits of faith in our world are rarely fast. Faith is measured in years and decades and half centuries and sometimes through multiple generations committed to a singular task. Humans have proven that when we believe corporately in what we wish to accomplish, very little has proven to be outside of our grasp. Through this reality, we have learned the power of faith. This is the faith God requires to be directed towards him. And such faith, properly and tenaciously directed toward God and worked out through forgiveness and prayer, will produce greater accomplishments than we have ever before witnessed. However, the faith of the West today is not in God or in walking in the footsteps and example of Jesus. The faith of the West today, by which astounding and miraculous achievements have resulted, is faith in the God of science, in the God of knowledge. This faith truly has moved mountains, but it has at the same time separated us from God and his guidance. The miraculous results of faith are not the sole purview of God and the godly in Scripture. As Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21-23, through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Buried within this warning of Jesus is the revelation that people can prophesy, cast out demons, and perform miracles, apart from God. And the book of Revelation speaks similarly with respect to the deception of the nations in Revelation chapter 13 verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who live on it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This is the the kicker here. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth in the presence of the people. And he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast, who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or to sell, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty-six. Revelation prophesies that the deception of the nations will be accomplished by the working of miraculous signs by faith in the beast. This is the essence of the mark of the beast, which has been deliberately placed by John, the author of Revelation, in contradistinction with the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-9, through 9, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. As the miraculous plagues of Egypt by which God delivered the Israelites from Egypt laid the foundation of Israel's faith in God, so the miraculous feats of the beast will lay the foundation of the faith of the world in the Antichrist. An alternative Savior. And as Israel's faith in God was to be expressed by the writing of the law of God on their foreheads guiding their vision, their right hands guiding their behavior, the entries to their houses guiding their households, and the entries to their cities guiding their society, so the nation's faith in their own Savior will be expressed by the mark of the beast placed in all these places for these same reasons. In the West, science has produced many miraculous signs, and faith in it has moved many a mountain. And this God of the West is under assault by the one true God now. In December of 2020, I was serving as lead minister of a church in Syracuse, New York. Over the course of two weekends during that month, I shared with the church that the Lord was telling me that he was going to begin assaulting this Western God of science by striking the infrastructure of Western nations, much as he has struck the animals of ancient Egypt. And indeed... The infrastructure of America has been hit again and again by catastrophic weather, by cyber attacks, by ransomware attacks, by technological failures, by acts of terrorism, and by decay. Although these things have always occurred, they are increasing in intensity, severity, and frequency. The corruption of Western infrastructure will continue until the West repents of its faith in science and knowledge and returns to a place of recognizing God as the source of all knowledge and of giving him thanks. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was exhorting his disciples to place the kind of faith that humans place in technology and human effort to move mountains, in God. It's not that knowledge is inherently evil. The tree was a source not only of evil, but also of good. And yet knowledge will not save us. Life and thriving requires God, and knowledge requires a teacher to be properly observed and to put to proper use. So Jesus asked his disciples to put the energy the pharaohs put into building the pyramids into prayer and a spirit of forgiveness. Jesus wishes to cleanse the temple of God of its wickedness. If we place the faith in him to accomplish this, in and through us, that we have placed in science, God's will would truly be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Since the Garden of Eden, humanity has sought independence from God through knowledge. This false God has been with us from the beginning. In fact, this is the first idol humanity ever came to worship, and it did so in league with the ancient serpent, who is called Satan, or the devil. In ancient Egypt, this god was worshipped in the guise of Ptah. God is now assaulting this god of the West. Leave behind your faith and knowledge to save us, followers of Jesus. In the days ahead, God will demonstrate the inadequacy and limitations of this false god. It is time again to place our faith in Jesus. As in Egypt, this plague will not be recalled. It will remain until the end. Repent and follow Jesus. He is the only one who can bring salvation to fallen humanity and deliver us from life to death. And even more, he has promised to do these things for those who place their faith in him.